Well, this morning we're going to 2 Kings. We're going to be finishing up chapter 4, but spending most of our time in chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, uh, sort of the last section of chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 4. We're in a a section of 2 Kings in which we've been working our way through this list of miracle stories. Some of those miracle stories have been short, just a few sentences, a paragraph, and like we saw last week, some of them are longer and more complex. That was certainly the case last week. We looked at a short miracle and a longer miracle, and we'll be doing something the same this week. Uh, We again have a couple of quick, short miracles with Elisha, and then a longer conversation that plays out into a miracle. These miracles we said last week serve partly to help us recognize that Elisha is in fact a legitimate prophet, the voice of God in his time. But these longer stories, the more complex miracle stories, seem to be folded into this list of miracles as a way of also helping us see things about ourselves and about God, not just the legitimacy of Elisha. These longer stories are probably also here to help us recognize that it can be difficult to receive from God, difficult to respond to God's voice. That was certainly true of the time with Elisha, but it's also true of Jesus as well. People one day could witness his mighty miracles, the power of his words, and then the next day some of those very same people could go on to question his legitimacy and wonder who he really was and if it was something meaningful. I think it's true of our own day. We can receive things from God, be moved by God, have powerful experiences of the Spirit's presence, and then go on the next day to start doubting and questioning and wondering and hoping for our own way. We've also been getting these various ways that people respond to God throughout this whole book. I really think this is one of the main things the author is doing at the beginning of 2 Kings, is showing how these various ways of responding, we respond to the voice of God, the prophet of God. We've seen kings who rebel in a kind of prideful arrogance. We've seen towns that were believing but still skeptical. We've seen boys, groups of them, youth, mocking and jeering the prophet. And today I think we get another one of those ways of responding to God's voice, what we will see in this man, Naaman. We can be offended, offended by God's words, offended by God's actions, which will certainly be clear as we read the story together today. So let's take a look at the passage, a couple of short miracles and then a longer, more complex one that we'll spend our time in. I'm going to begin reading 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 38, 2 Kings 4, 38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Many of you know I have some food allergies. This is my new life verse. There was no harm in the pot. Some people like, like Jeremiah, the plans I have for you. This is my life verse. Verse 42. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in the sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. 
So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man, with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talons of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servant came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. There's more of the Naaman story we'll look at next week, but we're going to pause there for today. I said those first couple of stories are pretty clear, direct miracles, the kind of things we've seen before in 2 Kings, before we get on to this longer, more complicated story. In those first two stories, the first tells of a man during a famine who goes out trying to find something to eat. He gathers gourds off of a vine, not knowing what they are, and prepares them in a stew. As the men, this group of prophets, begin to eat the stew, they realize that these gourds are poisoned. There's death in the pot. Like Elisha had done, you remember at Jericho when the water had been bad, there he had poured salt into it, here he pours flour into the pot, and purifies this poison stew into something that they can eat. In the second story, a man comes to this group of prophets with a small amount of bread and grain, probably just enough for maybe his journey, a few days. But Elisha, having received it from the man as a gift, commands that it be set before the hundred-man group of prophets that they might all eat and have leftovers from this small amount. They can't believe this is possible, but they obey, and sure enough, a miraculous provision, a feast off of just these few loaves. In these last few chapters, one of the things that is clear is Elisha's ability to do miracles. We've seen it before, we see it here in the simplicity of these two acts. He speaks, and it works. 
purifies poisoned water in Jericho, produces enough oil from a single pot to save and pay off all the debts of a widow. A son is given to a barren woman and then raised back to life when he passes. Poisoned food purified. A few loaves turned into a feast for the prophets. As we saw last week, these miracles play out in the lives of everyday common men and women. Across all of those, it's common groups of prophets, barren women, people in desperate need. They cling to him, humble themselves, fear the Lord, and we watch as Elisha does incredible things in the name of God. But things get a little more complicated with this second story, this man Naaman. Naaman is described as a man of valor. Uh, This is often the Old Testament way of putting a kind of legendary figure, a heroic figure within his nation. He is a great general of the Syrian army to the north of Israel and apparently is a man who is well known and second only to the king that he serves in Syria. The problem is Naaman, this great heroic general, this warrior that the whole region knows of, has also contracted leprosy. When you read that word leper, leprosy in the Bible, it really is a pretty broad description. Usually a leper was anyone who had a kind of skin disease that was feared to be contagious. It certainly would have included what sometimes we might still call leprosy, but it probably also included a wide range of skin conditions. Remember, these are ancient people living in a culture where there is not disinfectant soap or disinfectant wipes. There's probably not regular bathing So anytime a person would have a condition that they feared to be contagious, the easiest thing to do was to ostracize that person, to remove that person from proximity with others, and so mitigate the risk of this disease spreading. And so here is this great heroic figure, Naaman, who suddenly finds himself in that very condition. It's a risk to him personally, but it's also a risk to his reputation, to his profession, to his place within that society. It just so happens that working in Naaman's house was this Israelite servant girl who had been literally taken from Israel during a Syrian raid. She realizes that if Naaman could go to Israel's God, that God would heal him of his leprosy. How remarkable it's this servant girl, kidnapped from her home, who now recognizes the potential of what God could do for this mighty warrior. Naaman agrees. He goes to the king of Syria. The king of Syria agrees, and he sends Naaman with this great procession of wealth, silver and gold, clothing. Maybe that doesn't seem like something significant to you, but in the ancient times, particularly royal garments like this probably represents were incredibly valuable. He comes with men and wealth, gold and silver, ready to give all of it to the king of Israel that the king of Israel might heal him through Israel's God. The king of Israel receives this procession and all of a sudden has a panic attack. I can't heal anybody. He mistakes the whole situation not as somebody wanting genuine healing, but mistakes it as a setup, a pretense for war. That if he refuses or cannot heal this great man of Syria, then Syria may respond with violence, may respond by coming down and attacking because of the offense made against Syria's great man, this general. He literally says in verse 7, Am I God to kill and make alive? Now, if you've missed this point throughout all of 2 Kings so far, then there's a kind of irony and a kind of clarity to what the king of Israel says. So often in this story, the kings of Israel have been more than happy to boss around the prophets of God, more than happy to make demands that God fulfill their wishes and their vision. But now this king says what has been painfully clear so far across the whole story. These kings are not God. 
These kings do not have the power to kill and make alive again. They do not have the power to heal like Elisha does. If you've missed this theme in the previous weeks, it's about as clear as it could get here. There is one person who can do things in Israel, things done in the name of the Lord, God's voice, his prophet, and the kings have no power by comparison. Well, apparently Elisha catches wind that the king is falling apart and losing it and fearful and preparing for battle, not knowing how to respond. And he simply says, send Naaman down to me. Naaman travels on with this great procession of wealth and men and comes to the door of Elisha. Elisha is inside. Here he stands at the door. And how does Elisha respond? He sends a messenger out to give instructions to this great heroic figure of the north. Verse 11. Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord. Naaman's imagining this great scene, the prophet coming out of his house, calling on God, wave his hand over the place, his leprosy, and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? What's he doing asking me to bathe in the Jordan? Doesn't he know the kind of waters I have back home in Damascus? And so it was that Naaman went away enraged. What Naaman was, was offended. He's offended that Elisha does not come out and pay the respect that he feels like he's due. He's offended that he's come all this way with all of this riches, this whole procession. And the thing that Elisha asks is him to bathe in the dirty little Jordan River. There's no royal platform. There's no crowds of people. If you've seen the Jordan, it's more like a creek than a river, particularly at times of the year. He's offended that God would not heal him in a manner that he thought fit his position, his prominence, with the kind of spectacle and fanfare that he was used to. His view of God and Israel's God and the prophet was there to serve his need, to fulfill his need, to prop up his image, to match the credibility that he thought he was due. You'll notice that once again, it's a servant that puts the pieces properly together. As they're leaving, Nehemiah, enraged without having been healed, one of the servants says to him, isn't this actually good news? All you have to do is bathe in the Jordan and you're healed. That servant's words were apparently compelling enough that Nehemiah does and is in fact healed. Now, you would think a man that was this desperate for healing a man whose sickness jeopardized his power and his position and a rank, a man who had come all this way and put himself in a position underneath the king of Israel, a man who was willing to spend a fortune of money to get this healing, you would think that he would be a pretty open-minded and obedient person. If he's willing to give and sacrifice all of this, surely he's willing to do just about anything to be healed. But he's actually not. He finds himself easily offended and walking away from the potential of God's work in his life because he didn't have it met the way he anticipated. You shouldn't miss the fact that Naaman almost misses his healing because he cannot get past the offense, the slight, that he felt was against him. He can't recognize God's help because he perceives it as an insult. The very thing that Elisha offers as healing to him is an insult. That's really important to understand from this story, that he almost misses it because of the way he was offended. There's a lot of talk in our own day, in our time, about offense. Many of you will know I'm offended has become a kind of cultural moment 
touch point, a, a cliche of the time that we live in. People seem at our time to be hypersensitive to almost any offense and ready at any word to be offended by somebody else's comment. Naaman, in his honor-shame culture, was not entirely different than ours, prone to easily being offended if the social protocols and scripts were not precisely followed. For Naaman, it was this perceived disrespect to his position, a position as a general that he had certainly earned through probably what was personal sacrifice, suffering, violence, risk, and victory over lesser men that he thought now deserved a certain amount of respect. And so it was that he found himself particularly vulnerable and sensitive to this slight, this offense. There's a lot of ideas about why our culture at this particular moment is so easily offended. What has happened that has left us all so prone to being offended, so quick to walk away from a conversation? For Naaman, it was about position. For us, it seems to be something like affirmation. Let me explain. Um, There's a famous psychological philosophical book written by a man named Philip Reif. It's called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Stick with me, I promise this is interesting. I'm not dragging you into too much psychology this morning. He outlined in his mind what has been changing in modern culture that leads to this new way of understanding who we are, how we answer the question, who am I? What he outlines in his book are different ways people across time have answered that question, who am I? He describes what he calls first the political man. Uh, There was a time in which you would have answered the question, who am I, by an appeal to the kingdom you were a part of, the republic that you participated in, the king that you would have given your identity to. Think of the ancients in Athens, I am an Athenian or an Assyrian. Your identity came primarily through these political establishments that you participated in. That's probably the case of a man like Naaman. Don't you know that I am the general of the great kingdom of Syria? That I've earned this position in this respect because of the political connections that I'm a part of? Reif goes on to identify a second period in which you would have answered that question, who am I, by what he calls the religious man. You understood your identity primarily related to which faith tradition you participated in. You were Protestant or Catholic or Muslim or Jewish. He identifies it with the period of the Middle Ages in which whole nations and people were primarily focused on these religious connections. Who am I? I'm defined by the religion that I'm a part of, the tradition that I've grown up in. Reef identified the third man as what he called the economic man. That a time came in which all of a sudden we began to leave behind the traditional definitions of who I am and moved into a period in which we defined ourselves primarily by occupation, by career. That my identity, who am I, was based on a job, a trade, a skill set, a union that I participated in. And that usually came during that time with an economic class, that I belonged to a certain group of people based on the career and occupation of my father and now me, and so it was my identity was given to me by that place in society. Reef says that we've moved into a new era in which he describes as the psychological man. What is the source, the answer today of that question, who am I? Well, certainly we don't identify it purely as I'm a citizen of the United States. That may be true, but not many of us would say that's the pinnacle of my identity. For many, it's not a religious tradition we find ourselves a part of, or these days an occupation, a trade that is our identity for life. Instead, Reef says we've moved into a time in which each person must have to look internally and choose an identity for themselves that they decide to express to the world. Sometimes the word is given expressive individualism. 
That your identity is based on you sensing who you are and who you want to be and expressing that in ways that maybe others around you don't want you to or may not agree with. But that boldness, that courage, that willingness to be who you are is the way you now answer the question, who am I? Now, each person has to look within and determine who is the truest version of themselves and embrace it with a kind of courage that projects it into the world. There was a study done of a group of teenagers in 2005. I actually was a teenager in 2005, so this is my people. I'm partly responsible, I guess, for the results that came out. They did a series of interviews trying to understand how the faith of this new generation coming up, what might have been called millennials, uh, how it had been changing from the generations before. And in the study, they asked a series of questions, did sets of interviews across thousands of teenagers, and walked away with what they coined as a new religious phrase, Moral therapeutic deism, that sounds complex, moral, right versus wrong, is therapeutic, psychological, making myself feel good, deism, somehow involving a deity, God. They outlined five points of this new way of thinking about God. I think they'll sound pretty familiar to you. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay. Number two, God wants people to be good nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve problems or overcome obstacles. Number five, good people go to heaven. I think if you want to hear it summarized, one of the essay or one of the correspondence they quoted, one of the interviews they had done, the student put it this way. I think every religion is important in its own respect. You know, if you're Muslim, then Islam is the way for you. If you're Jewish, well, that's great too. If you're a Christian, well, good for you. It's just whatever makes you feel good about you. I think that last phrase puts it pretty well. We live in a culture and a time in which the most important thing is your happiness, your personal fulfillment, and that each of us answers the question, who am I, by deciding personally what works best for us, what helps us. As Reef called it, the psychological man. We look inside and decide what will make us happy. We express that identity to the world, and what we expect in return is for others to affirm that version of ourselves that we project. That as I step out in faith and declare who I am to the world, this uniqueness of myself, then what I want is people around me to affirm it, to agree with it, to support it, to rally behind it. So when someone comes along as you're expressing this self and they don't take it seriously or worse, they reject it, well, the natural response is to feel offended. We feel belittled. This you not agreeing with me is not now just a disagreement, but a personal attack, a question of my dignity and meaning and worth. And so it is we find ourselves in a time where people are hyper, hypersensitive to being offended, the stakes of that offense being my dignity as a person and an individual. Um, I'm not trying to steer us down some psychological side street this morning, but what I want you to hear is when we talk about the culture being offended, I don't think it's just well, everybody's so sensitive these days. I think it actually makes a lot more sense than most of us have given the time to realize. And unfortunately, so often as believers in the church, I worry we've been sort of sucked into it as well. People feel insecure about themselves. They're looking for affirmation. Well, 
Perhaps the church could be the place where they come and we affirm them. We give them that sense of meaning and dignity. So God is presented to our culture as somebody there to help you solve problems, to help you feel accepted, to help you feel valuable in this identity that you're pursuing. We turn Jesus into the great affirmer who sees people and affirms their uniqueness, affirms their value. God is here to help you achieve your best life, your biggest dreams, your unique self-expression. There was a day when people rejected God because of intellectual ideas, arguments, or views about science, but today most people would say, God isn't making me feel happy, or I'm glad God works for you, but I find that meaning in X, Y, or Z. We couldn't imagine a God who would draw lines and tell us no, that kind of judgment feels to us like offense. Now, the challenge of all this is Jesus is not just walking around telling everybody how terrible they are all the time. Let me shatter that self-image you've been working on. Jesus does, in fact, offer people dignity and love and value and purpose in their life. He does recognize those who are cast out and downcast. But Jesus also challenges people. He does not always affirm. He does sometimes, but just as often he provokes He breaks the social script and forces people to decide if they really want to be his follower or if they're just following to get the things they already decided they wanted. And what I see in this story with Elisha is something similar. Here comes this great man. Wouldn't it be great if if, uh, Naaman was converted to Israel's God? I mean, this is a huge opportunity, a man of this influence. But Elisha recognizes that he's not there for Israel's God. He's not there for truth. He's not there to be challenged or critiqued or better understand how God's, the God of Israel wants to be worshipped. He's there to get what he wants, willing to pay for it if that's what it requires. And so Elisha refuses to come out and meet him, refuses to play his game, checks the way he's come into the conversation. And so by it exposes that Naaman is not really interested in tr- truth or God at all. He's there for a healing, but a particular kind of healing, a healing that'll make for a great headline back home, a healing on his terms that affirms his greatness. Is he interested in affirmation or is Naaman interested in true submission? Well, he's interested in his image being propped up. I think that warning should be real to you. God is here to show you that your life does have meaning that it does have dignity, that it does have purpose. But to do that, sometimes he actually provokes us, challenges us, disciplines us, not just affirms us. We can miss the good things God is doing, the good things God is offering, because we see them as a threat to the thing we've been doing. We can miss his healing as we try to defend ourselves in the way we think God should interact with us. Being offended, We can refuse to submit and miss the very gifts and grace that God is offering us for our life. It's no wonder that at one point in the Gospels, Jesus said, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Jesus does not come just to affirm humanity, to make us feel better about being human. He doesn't come to tell us we really are good people, good people doing the best we can with what we've got. He comes because we're on a path that leads to death. He comes because left to ourselves in our own hearts, we will stray and choose death over life. He comes that he might call us to repent, to turn around, to change directions. 
He comes to save us and heal us, but to save us, he must show us that our way is the wrong way. Jesus is willing to risk offending us to save us. And I think what Elisha does in this moment is the same. Risks offending the great man to help this great man actually receive not only a healing, but Israel's God. The servant finally gets a hold of Naaman, and do you see what he says to him in verse 13? My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. In other words, Naaman, this is good news. Isn't that interesting? One man can perceive Elisha's words as an offensive insult and walk away enraged. And another man, standing listening to the exact same words, can recognize it as good news. To one, the word of God is offense, and to the other, it is gospel, good news, hope. Is it any surprise that the man who submits to no one, Naaman, struggles to now hear the good news in this call to submission? While the man whose whole life this servant has been all about submission recognizes right away, you got exactly what you were asking for. Is it possible that our constant need to be affirmed, the insecurity, the constant angling and positioning of ourselves for our own identity, our own will, might keep us from recognizing what God is doing, that what God is doing by his grace might to us feel like an insult or a threat? That God saying no might feel to us like judgment, vindictiveness, an angry God, when in reality, to another man, those very words sound like freedom and grace and hope. Is it possible that it's only through submission that we begin to sense how good those words actually are? To one man, Jesus is an offense, and to another, he is salvation, grace, and mercy. To the one, he is a stumbling stone. To the other, he's a rock of salvation, a cornerstone that you could build your life upon. It's not then surprising that Jesus would call his disciples to take up their own crosses and die to themselves. You've probably heard that phrase a million times. But what does it mean? We don't take up literal crosses. We don't literally die to ourselves. But perhaps this means something like to give up my own identity my own self-expression, my own answers to the question, who am I? My own need to be constantly affirmed and recognized and seen. And instead, to die to those desires and offer that question, who am I, into the hands of God, acknowledging that it will probably mean he challenges me in ways that feel slightly uncomfortable, points to things in my life that I would rather him leave alone, but in the end, a sense that those are acts of grace, not insult. As you do that, that act of submission, the same word that previously sounded to you like an offense suddenly takes on the sound of healing. Perhaps every healing requires some kind of death. Healing requires the recognition of our need, that we need something that we and ourselves can't produce a death to our independence and our self-will. Healing requires that we trust God, that we put our lives and our needs into his hand, a death to our will. Healing requires that we die to ourselves, death to my position, my identity, my priorities. Healing, an act of submission, dipping myself into the waters of the Jordan River, 
as silly as it may sound, trusting. Is my life really submitted to God, is I think the question of this story. Or is it possible that in demanding my own way and my sensitivity to offense and my need for affirmation, I'm really not submitted at all? Am I looking for affirmation for what I want, or am I really trying to hear what God is saying to me? Are there things that God might ask or point to that I would be offended by, irritated with? Could my self-obsessions be keeping me from receiving what God is trying to do as a better work in my life? Do I actually know what it means to die to myself, or do I pretend that work just so that I can protect it and keep hold of my own control? Those are not easy questions, but those are the questions of real disciples. Those are the questions of humble people like these servants, who as kings and rulers are flailing and preparing for war, are capable of discerning in the midst of it what God is actually saying. This is good news. This morning, we're going to wrap up before we go into worship by sharing communion together. It's always my tradition to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Those are the familiar words, uh, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. But if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 11, you'll remember that Paul's writing those words into a very specific situation. Apparently, at the church in Corinth, people were rushing in to take communion. In their day, what would have probably been a community meal together. And that those who were uh, not employed or not working, wealthy enough to not have to work to survive, they would descend on the communion meal and eat their fill and drink the wine, and most of it would be gone before the rest of the group, fresh off of their day's labor, would show up for worship, for the meal. And so it was, Paul writes to them, just before the passage we normally read, So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. The reason Paul writes about the way in which we should practice communion, which you will hear in a moment, participating in the death of Christ is a reminder to those who were all about their own desires, their selfishness, their self-interest, their hungers, what they needed, the kinds of meaningful religious experiences they wanted for themselves. And so by it, they missed the actual meaning of communion. You were participating in death. When you drink of the cup, when you eat of the bread, you were participating in Christ's death as an act of submission, your life crucified, so that by his crucifixion, you might also be raised to a new life. I just want to remind you this morning that as we take communion together, we do it primarily as an act of submission, not an affirmation, not a, I like taking communion because it makes me feel good about myself. We take communion as a way of saying to God, let me die with you that I might live with you. Let me submit all of who I am in the same way you submitted all of who you were. And by this blood and by this body that I participate in, let me hear good news and words that this world may recognize as offense. We're going to pray together this morning. We'll take communion and then we'll worship. Heavenly Father, we live in a world in which so many people are offended by you 
are irritated by you, are turned off by your words, your commands, your wisdom. And God, we know that it's easy for us too to believe and worship and take communion when really we're in it for ourselves. When we're trying to keep hold of our lives the way we want them. We know how easy it is to eat of this communion, to drink of this cup in an unworthy manner. So this morning we take a moment to repent. God, forgive us of how much of our lives, how much of our energy and time we spend trying to pursue our own will and have it our own way. God, I pray that you would free us from this culture we live in that demands affirmation, that's lost searching for a way of answering who we are. That God, as we hold these elements this morning, we may realize that who we are is in you that you have purchased us with your death, that we belong to you. And that that call for submission, the authority that we have under you is not a curse. It doesn't stifle us, but it's our healing. It's our hope. It's our eternity. And so, God, where this world is offended by your ways, let us hear your grace in the midst of it. Where you call for holiness and obedience, let us not feel it as restriction, but as freedom, as healing, as restoration. God, by the power of your spirit, help us sense the ways you are doing good things, even through your discipline, even through loss. And so we trust you, you being the God who works death into life, crucifixion into resurrection. And we participated in this morning put this earthly life, this fleshly life of ours to death this morning and in its place resurrect a new man, a new life submitted to you, healed by you, restored for all eternity by you. And God, let my heart beat to obey and to serve and to worship and to live in submission to all that you call me into. That I might not go away enraged and offended like this servant, that I might hear your words in the midst of this world, foolishness and offense to some, but to me, good news, the power of God, the hope of resurrection, healing, healing poured out by your spirit this morning. So we take this communion as a symbol of it. We do it together, breaking our individual will, submitting our lives before you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we